Thanks, Barry. We're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we're coming to the end here. Uh, if you've got a worship folder coming in, there's an insert. On one side is the passage this morning, and on the other side is an outline. So I'd encourage you to use that. You can follow up on the screen behind me. There are also pew Bibles or the Bible you might have brought from home. Uh, we're going to read from Matthew 26. Uh, verses 47 to 56. So if you would follow along with me as we begin. Matthew 26, 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left Him. And fled. This is God's word uh, this morning. Uh, A question to begin, uh, and you have to pardon my voice, clear it several times uh, this morning. I've got something going on up here. Uh, And as I think was last time or the time before that, I, I don't have a Ricola in my mouth. For those of you who remember that. My pathetic attempt at singing. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I want to open with a question as we look at this passage. How do you tend to respond when someone is unkind to you? When's the last time someone was unkind to you? Maybe been today, maybe been this week. But the last time someone was unkind to you, how do you tend to respond? Uh, better yet, uh, if you've experienced a betrayal in the past, how did you treat the betrayer after you discovered? that sin, or after that sin was uncovered. Uh, As I mentioned before, we're in the middle of this series on the passion of Jesus, which is really His journey to the cross. And the last two weeks have been very powerful, as we've seen how Jesus drew His disciples to His body and blood, to the coming sacrifice for them in the Lord's Supper. And then last week we looked at Jesus in the garden, being pressed, being pressed by the realization of what awaited Him, the cup of the Father's wrath, he turned to his father in prayer, and remember there was nothing. He had always, eternally, ever only known perfect fellowship, and as he turned to his father, there was silence. By the way, as as we left last week, Drew mentioned Gethsemane's that God might be calling us to, and so I want to ask, did any of you experience a Gethsemane this past week? If so, how did you respond? Today as we move forward, we're going to look at how Jesus responds to Judas 
his betrayer, and don't forget, his friend. This was one of his friends, as well as to his captors. But the heart of this passage for us, really, I think, is Jesus' words regarding how we live. Will we follow the way of the sword or follow him in the way of the cross? I mean, that's really the issue. So first, we're going to walk through the story to see how everyone involved, with the stunning exception of Jesus, is full of cowardice. And on the other hand, Jesus is full of courage because he's in full submission to the Father's will. He's modeling for us the words that he gave us earlier in the gospel. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will save it. So if you look at the outline, really the way that this is going to work is we look at cowardice versus courage. We're going to kind of look at an illustration first as it's played out in the story, kind of at the beginning of the activity of cowardice or or cowardice in action. And then at the end, how Jesus exposes that. And then we're going to kind of look at the principle. So the illustration first and then come back and hit the principle at the very end. So first, cowardice in action. And the point is, look look at the first few verses. It's helpful to give a little context here before we... Uh, get into this. Remember, they're they're still in the garden. Jesus has just finished speaking or encouraging his disciples. Sleep later. Now is not the time to be sleeping. He's already shared his last supper, so he goes to the garden to pray, and it's probably about midnight. And I I just want to remind you. I just want you to think about for a second. Jesus will not sleep again until his death on the cross. He's going to be awake this entire time. So just for a second, imagine the mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, all of that put together into the anguish that he's already experienced. And he hasn't even even been through the process of the mocking, the beating, the scourging. And as he's talking with his disciples about the need to be vigilant and prayerful, Judas shows up. Jesus doesn't have a moment's notice. He doesn't have a chance to pause. He doesn't have a chance to kind of get his bearings. He, he's immediately thrust into the next engagement with evil. He, the, the mission doesn't stop to give him a chance to rest. He's like a boxer on the ropes. And he continues to get punched by the hands of sinners. As he says in verse 46... Rise, behold, my betrayers at hand, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinners. I mean, the words he's been speaking to his disciples again and again are finally coming to fulfillment. But as we'll see, they, they, they still don't get it. In verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus warned, One of you will betray me. And Judas is described by Matthew right here in verse 47 as one of the twelve. And I, I don't want you to miss that. Here comes Judas, one of the twelve. This man, Judas, had spent the last three years of his life with Jesus. He had witnessed miracles of all sorts. 5,000 people fed, a sea calmed, children raised from the dead, demons called out, and the list could go on. He had eaten, drank, laughed, slept next to, and probably cried with Jesus. And now he's going to betray him to the corrupt religious leaders for 30 years pieces of silver. 
So what do you think Jesus was feeling as he looks up and he sees his friend coming toward him? His friend coming toward him with a crowd bearing swords and clubs. I mean, it's worth asking the question, have you ever been betrayed by a dear friend, by a close friend? By somebody you've spent years with? By somebody you thought you had an intimate, close connection or relationship with? If you have, Jesus knows how you feel. He's unlike any Savior that's ever been. He's experienced the full range of human emotions. And as we read in the Assurance of Pardon, He suffered when He was tempted, so He knows what it's like to suffer when you're tempted. The beautiful thing about Jesus, though, is he he experienced that range of emotions and he redeemed them. And in him, our emotions can get redeemed as well. And we can begin to respond or learn how to respond differently when we experience the same kinds of betrayal, the same levels of unkindness that he was or he had experienced even here. Matthew records Judas arrives with a great crowd. And it's probably not fitting with our definition of a crowd, as this was trying to intentionally be done under the cover of night. I mean, these these folks were being very intentional in when they went about this injustice, this, this, this false pretense that they were operating under. So most likely, this was a detachment of the, the palace police force under the authority of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the, the uh, Jewish Supreme Court. So these guys show up, And what adds insult to injury is the way Judas goes about identifying Jesus. He had warned them ahead of time, or he had told them, the one that I kiss is the one sees him. So he he walks up to Jesus, and he kisses him and greets him, Rabbi. And it's ironic, because disciples never kiss their masters. It's a big no-no. A master might greet his disciple with a kiss, but never vice versa. And he might only do that on a special occasion. This was, this was an, an act of considerable honor. It, was, it wasn't an everyday instance. But what makes it particularly galling here is that action would constitute equality. It was as if Judas was walking up to Jesus and saying to him, or in greeting him, I'm equal to you. And so with one action, he's really repudiating his relationship with Jesus. He's insulting him. On purpose. And he, with this, is kind of the last straw. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And yet, look at the way Jesus responds to him. Verse 50. This cowardly insult is met with a kind, gentle response. Friend. He says to him, friend. In the midst of being betrayed and mocked by his disciple, Jesus reaches out to him in loving kindness. He calls him friend. He doesn't call him out in front of everyone. He doesn't rebuke him on the spot. He simply accepts his friend's action. And he calls him this when everything he's done and is doing points to the contrary. It's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing considering... How I probably would have responded, you know, if this one of my guys I find out betrays me. Would not have responded like that. Would have probably tried to go after him. Would have responded uh, 
in the complete opposite manner in the way Jesus does. And yet, he says, friend, do what you came to do. Now, what's fascinating about the the whole event here as Matthew describes it, and then how Jesus exposes uh, what he sees, is that what they've come to do under the cloak of darkness, uh, they, they, they would not have done at any other time because, well, they were cowards. Everything about their operation was wimpy and timid. And Jesus exposes this in a couple of different ways. First, he says, day after day, day after day. They come in the middle of the night. Jesus says, day after day, I've been right in front of you. It's not as though he was hidden during the day and came out to work at night or or called his disciples together at night. That's what robbers do. Robbers do work at night, not Jesus. These guys come with swords and clubs as if they're coming after a robber. And he reminds them, I've been out in public view, minding my own business, quietly teaching in the temple for the last three years, in fact. Robbers usually have a posse of bandits that wield weapons to protect them, not Jesus. These guys come to seize him as if he's on the run. When Judas kisses him, signaling to the captors, He's their man. They laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Verse 50. Jesus says, he's been teaching daily in the temple, sitting. Now, do you need to see somebody who's sitting? Somebody who's sitting doesn't typically present a threat. Why would they need to seize him? As if he's going to make a run for it. As if he's a fugitive. The irony is, insurrectionists and and those who are plotting rebellion have hideouts in the wilderness. They're constantly in motion like nomads, not Jesus. Jesus completely goes after every aspect of their operation and how foolish, how cowardly it is. And he says to them, I've been right here. Why do you come out against me? As a robber, I've sat in the temple teaching. I've been right in front of you the whole time and you've never seized me. I mean, even in the midst of not just experiencing betrayal by a friend, but being arrested in a thoroughly corrupt and unjust way, he's going after their hearts. He's going after them in love, trying to call them to see the foolishness of what they're doing. It really is amazing. But the heart of this passage, the heart of this passage for us, I think, is the middle section. The crowd approaches and Judas identifies Jesus. They then seize him for arrest, but it's the reaction of the disciples, particularly Peter, because the the parallel gospel accounts tell us, at least we think, Peter is probably the one with the sword. And after all this time, At the end of the line, everything Jesus has said, it's all coming to fruition, it's all coming true, and they still don't get it. How they respond to the pressure cooker situation compared to Jesus is very profound, especially for us, because as you're reading through this passage, I really want you to try to find yourself in this passage. Keep in mind, they've just been dozing 
while Jesus is wrestling with the Father, fighting for his life. The work of prayer is so hard, but taking care of some scummy police from the Sanhedrin is easy. You just take out your sword and you start swinging. But but they're not willing to engage in the hard work of prayer. Luke records one of those with Jesus asking, as, as these folks approach, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They see a battle royale brewing, and yet Jesus has to gently, once again, gently point them that there's a different battle going on, something altogether uh, different, something altogether far more important and profound than what they're experiencing or thinking. So as you move to the third point here, and this is where we're going to kind of uh, settle and, and, and spend quite a bit of time because I really do feel like it's the heart of the passage. It's, it, it's where we have the most to learn. To contrast the way of the sword that, again, you see in the disciples with the way of the cross. What's going on here? Why is it so important? And, and how can we use it as we move forward to figure out what is it Jesus is calling us to? Well, first, what's wrong with solving this problem of arresting Jesus with the sword? Why doesn't Jesus allow them to kind of all take their swords out and start swinging away? Chopping ears, chopping legs, arms, doesn't matter. What's wrong with that? Well, it revealed a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. If you recall, back in Matthew 16, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, And then Jesus accepts this confession as true. And right after that, he immediately begins to tell the disciples again, reminds them that the Messiah is going to be, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, suffer, and die. And Peter, who's just said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, begins to rebuke the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean... One, one guy, one time I heard preaching on this, says, you know, if you believe Peter in that moment got the keys to the kingdom, he handed them right back after Jesus gave them to him. Because clearly, according to Peter, Jesus is confused. Lord, you're, you're confused. Messiahs don't get arrested. Messiahs don't suffer. They arrest their enemies. They make them suffer. And so now... As he witnesses Jesus' words coming to fulfillment, right before his eyes, he still can't accept it. He still doesn't get it. And so he takes up the sword. But let's be honest. The way of the sword is very attractive, right? Why is that? Bring it to your life. Let's apply it uh, to ourselves. It's very gratifying. It's very easy to exert our will to make things happen according to our plan. That was Peter's Desire. That's what he was going for here. Every problem that you and I encounter, every relationship we enter, is an opportunity to exert our will or to bend it to someone else, to submit it to someone else's. Remember Jesus' posture of prayer just before this scene? We heard it last week. He comes to the Father and he says, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. And he is reversing. And Drew mentioned this last week. The work of another man in another garden. Who instead of saying to God, not my will, 
but yours said, not your will, but mine. Willfulness is the way of the world. It's the way of the human heart. Listen to this quote from a story. This was out of the New York Times Magazine last week. It's an 87, it's about a kind of a bio, the whole story is, of an 87-year-old guy who hopes to research and eat healthy enough to reach 125. That's his goal. I don't know why that's his goal, but that's his goal. And uh, he has invested billions of his own money to come up with uh, the best way of eating and this research lab and, and all of this kind of stuff. But as you read the article from start to finish, you're really struck by the guy's arrogance. You're really struck by his godlike uh, persona, at least in his own thinking. And the person who was interviewing him experienced it in a number of different ways. But let me read just a bit to you. She says, uh, this guy stands at only five foot eight, and while he perhaps doesn't look each and every one of his many 87 years, his skin is deeply wrinkled and his hair is entirely white. His hearing has dulled so that he frequently misunderstands the questions he's asked, <clears throat> though it's possible in some instances he simply decides not to answer them and to talk about something else instead. He thrums. I've never heard that word before, but I like it. He thrums with willfulness. He says, I've never had a boss in my whole life owning up to what he labels a dictatorial streak. And then here's the, here's the line. He says, I've totally destroyed anybody's ability to tell me what to do. And I love it. That's just gross. And the interviewer experiences it. He's very, very judgmental. He, he's rude to people. He tells people who he thinks are slightly or at all overweight that they're going to die soon if they don't change their lifestyle. I mean... He has found the thing that he can own and he can, he's, he's found his sword, so to speak. And all he does is he walks around and anybody that doesn't agree with him or anybody that he thinks is wrong gets cut with the sword. He just slashes people left and right. I've totally destroyed anyone's ability to tell me what to do. That is the way of the sword. Our agenda is the expansion of our kingdom, a world where our will is master and where we jab with a sword anybody who's dumb enough to try and tell us what to do, anybody who's got the, the gall to tell us how to live. And it really is, underneath all this, the flip side of courage. To be willful is to be a coward because in willfulness, I don't have to confront problems or people. I don't have to think before I act. I just get to act. I just get to do whatever it is that I want to do. There's no real courage involved in that. And Peter's problem, as he wanted Jesus to fit into his kingdom paradigm, if you're Messiah, Peter says, you're going to fulfill the role on my terms. And the irony is he thought he was being courageous. He thought as he stepped up with his sword to take care of these guys in front of Jesus, Jesus was going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right there on the spot. But he doesn't do that. 
In fact, if you go back through the Gospel of, of Matthew, you'll see several descriptions Jesus gives us of taking up the sword, of living according to our wills. He says things like, it's saving your life, it's exalting yourself, it's lording authority over your subjects. And so the question for us becomes, to what extent or to what lengths are we willing to go and who are we willing to cut through to get our will? Do we use the sword in our relationships? If so, how? How do you use the sword in people you're related to? Husbands and wives, is every day a day where you begin with pulling it out and sort of sizing each other up? Who's going to win today? Every opportunity you get with your coworkers, with your children, with your neighbors. I mean, do you use the sword when you're checking out at the grocery store? Hurry up! Get my stuff done! Slash away. Is every circumstance of every day a chance to use the sword or a chance to die? Do you view other people as obstacles to cut through or burdens to carry? And here's the question. When our will gets crossed, will we kill or be killed? Jesus' words in verse 52 reveal a different way. They reveal the way of the cross. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. For Jesus, the will of his Father drove his life. Seeing the Father glorified mattered more to him than promoting himself. For you and I, it's self-preservation, right? It's self-exaltation. Those two things had no place in Jesus' life because his identity didn't come from them. He describes the way of the cross throughout the Gospels in contrast to the way he describes taking up the sword. He says things like, losing your life is where you find your life. Humbling yourself is where you find exaltation. Becoming the servant of, go- of all is where you find greatness. Every problem he encountered, every situation he entered into, he listened to his father, he sought his father's counsel. His will took a back seat to the will of his father. And as a result, Jesus was the most courageous person who ever lived. Because he didn't fear man, because he didn't need man's approval, the way of the sword wasn't attractive to him. Look at how self-controlled he is throughout these last hours of his life. Not just in the garden and this week, but you'll see in the weeks to come how incredibly self-controlled this man was. What's his focus? What's it mean to be self-controlled? It means that the most urgent thing in front of you is not the most important thing. That's not what gets your attention. You see, for Peter and the disciples, the problem in front of them was the betrayers with the swords and the clubs. That's the issue we've got to solve. And for Jesus, it was the larger, more important problem of the Scriptures. These things must happen. For Jesus, it's an epic battle that must be fought, not this minor little skirmish that's going to be done in five minutes. It is an epic battle, a a cosmic day of reckoning. And even though it's the hour of darkness now, Jesus knows beyond the hour of darkness is going to be 
the hour, the age of daylight. Now, how can we begin to move away from living and dying by the sword to living by and taking up the cross? Where's the courage come to live like this? Jesus got it from his father, from a, from a, a, a knowledge that his father loved him. For us, though, it comes because Jesus didn't come wielding the sword. If you recall, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman get banished from the garden after they said to God, not your will, God, but mine. God put a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the tree of life. And the great news is, Jesus came to be cut in two by that sword so that you and I could come behind him, covered by him, and stand before God to enjoy the tree of life. Not just the tree of life, all of life. Abundant life. Jesus was willing to die by the sword so that we don't have to. And faith in that will both humble you and secure you to the extent you no longer need to live by the sword. That isn't what matters. That's not what's important. I, w- I want to read you just a few verses here in, in, clothing, in closing as we think about an application. Uh, a, a, a very concrete application. From the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. Just listen. Beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What's your life controlled by? Paul describes a life that is controlled by the love of Christ. He says, if Jesus died for you, then you have no reason to live for yourself, but every reason to live for the one who died and was raised for you. In fact, Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new person. That's the way of the cross. A life controlled by the love of Jesus for you. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, or we have based our lives on this, the fact that Jesus has died for us, and we now know the love of God for us in Christ. It's a life controlled by the love of Jesus rather than the way of the sword which is a goal in a life of controlling other people. Through my will, through exerting my will, through getting to uh, make other people live by my will. And here's the thing. The way of the sword will keep you cutting away when you're threatened with loss, when you're threatened to lose the things that have captivated, that are controlling your life, or when you're confronting some problem. You're going to continue to cut away 
And yet, if you have the love of God in Christ controlling you, captivating you, some of your Bibles may say, for the love of Christ compels us, then you'll willingly lose because Jesus and his love are far more valuable, far more permanent than a few temporary victories. This is why the disciples saw the present problem, the immediate, the urgent right in front of them. Jesus saw something far greater, far bigger. It's the story of redemption. So what's the story that's compelling you? Is it your story? Is it your kingdom? True life is found in the way of the cross. It's the beauty of a life where we don't crush our enemies, we die for them. A life where we don't defend ourselves because Jesus' record and his reputation are far more worthy than ours could ever be. The way of the cross is the way of love. And it's the only way, it's the only way that we'll ever see our city and our world change. At the very end of the passage I read, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christians have been given a message of reconciliation and we make our plea to the world as his ambassadors. He's using a specific military word. In Paul's day, an ambassador ambassador was the person who would take the terms of peace to the enemy army. They would walk out in front of their army. They would take the terms across the field to the enemy camp. And they were unarmed. The only thing they had were the terms of peace. And that's what he's saying. You and I offer to the world the terms of peace. Be reconciled to God in Christ. And if you know, if you're controlled, if you're compelled by the love of God for you in Christ, then you don't need to wield a sword. You can take that message. You can go out. We can take our city. We can take our world for His glory. Let's pray that he gives us the courage uh, to begin to live like that and do that in light of what we've seen in him this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, help us to increasingly marvel at your work on our behalf. Help us to increasingly see you not killing your enemies, but dying for your enemies. Uh, that it would change in us a desire to crush our enemies and move us toward people who, who want to die for them. Help us to be people by your Spirit, and as we increasingly look at you, help us to be people who uh, give up our wills, that we might submit to yours. Help us to increasingly move away from the way of the sword toward the way of the cross. And in doing that, might you be glorified in our lives. May you help us to glorify you in our city and our world. For Christ's sake. Uh, If the way of the cross sounds overwhelming to you, uh, you're not alone. Sounds overwhelming to me. Uh, Where are you going to get the strength? Where are you going to get the courage to begin to live like that? It's only in the benediction, the blessing that I get to raise my hands over you and give you as you go, uh, that's the fuel uh, to live like this. Uh, And only as you put your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as I said, I was willing to take the sword so you and I don't have to.
it's the only way we can begin to move out and live lives of courageous faith uh, in the face of cowardice all around us. So receive this blessing as you go to equip you in this work. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.